Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Lent, we are doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus, where we examine various parables that Jesus taught during his ministry. The goal of this series is to examine the messages from these parables and how they are asking us to change internally through our spirituality and externally through our behaviors. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading coming from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? He left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said earlier, 
we are celebrating Palm Sunday this morning. And what that means is we're only a week out from Easter. We literally are entering into Holy Week. As you heard TC talk about, we have a bunch of services ready for you. So I just hope that you can get into the spirit of this week, what it's all about. And I hope that today will begin that process for you. We've been doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus. The concept behind the series is that we're looking at different parables that Jesus used to teach. And of course, a parable is a short story that is told with the explicit purpose of illustrating a moral or spiritual lesson. And when they are told well, then a parable can convey deep truth and meaning to the hearer. And Jesus, when he would tell a parable, they were often very cryptic. You would have to kind of try to work to understand what they meant. But once you got the meaning, you could really take away a lot of what he intended for you, both internally, spiritually, and externally through your actions. Last week, we preached about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. If you didn't hear Judy's sermon on that, I would highly recommend going back and listening to it. It was a very good exposition on that text, giving us a lot to think about in terms of how we're supposed to live our lives. Today, we are going to look at the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. But before we can dive into that, I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, because if you don't understand what's going on on Palm Sunday, then you can't really understand what's happening inside of this parable. So I want to talk about what happened on Palm Sunday and why it happened. The what of Palm Sunday is fairly straightforward. You just heard me read it. Essentially, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And as you can see up on the screen here, you're seeing a map that goes from Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, down to Jerusalem. What most people don't realize when they're thinking about the geography of this particular area of the world is it's hard for them to keep in mind the distance of things. Now, that's about an 80-mile distance between Nazareth and Jerusalem. And if you he's up in the area where he would normally go around in Galilee, which is up near the lake, he would be another 10, 20 miles inland. So basically you're talking about a hundred mile journey. It would take him a couple of days to get down there. So if he's going to Jerusalem, he's going for a very specific reason. He obviously has a real intention going down there. So when he goes into Jerusalem, what happens is people start cutting down palm branches. They're laying those before him. The palm branches are a symbol of war. And so he makes his way in and he goes up to what is the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount is where we have the highest point in Jerusalem. It's where the people, the Jewish people, would worship God. And there are different kind of levels to the temple, different areas. And he goes in to the temple courtyard. And in the temple courtyard, that is where you would find the money changers, similar to when you would go to a foreign country and you have to change your money so you can buy things. You would change your money there. And they would also have the sacrifices where you could buy a sacrifice for God. We're going to get more into that later. So Jesus, he goes in and he starts turning over the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices. And you can just imagine there's just money getting strewn everywhere. And he's going over to where they're selling the sacrifices. He's probably letting out the sacrifices. And so it would be total chaos. You have animals running everywhere. You have money on the ground. It would have been quite a scene. And then he's there for only a little bit of time, really, and eventually he ends up leaving, kind of heading out of Jerusalem very quickly as he had come in. And so this 
is kind of the setup for Palm Sunday. The question is, why does he do this? Why does he take all this time to go down to Jerusalem, to turn over the tables, to do everything that he does? What was his intention? And if you ask me, I really believe that this is one of the most misunderstood events in the Christian faith. So I want to walk you through all of the elements of what occurs. So in order to understand why he goes and he overturns all these tables and causes all this chaos, we need to go back to 26 BC. It's a very important date because that is the founding of the Roman Empire. There had been a very bloody civil war. All of these different factions were trying to vie for power. And the person in the end who ends up winning the war is a man named Augustus. That's the man who ends up taking over. And Augustus, he ends up being a very shrewd leader. He's very, very smart. And he understands that he now oversees this massive area of land. So this is a map of what it looked like. This was his actual area that he now oversaw. This is, this is the biggest empire in the world at this time. So a lot of people were under his control, and he knew that if he was going to prevent them from revolting, they needed to be economically prosperous. The better they were economically, the less likely he was to have to use force to keep them in line. So one of the first things that he does is he releases standardized coinage throughout the Roman Empire. He gets that out into the empire, and the reason he does this is because he wants to get the economy back in shape. That civil war had really destroyed a lot of the economy, and so now he's trying to get everything even. And people really appreciated this because this allowed all of these nation states under his control to be able to trade with each other. And so all of a sudden the economy started going, and it really helped things, particularly down in the Holy Land. Wealthy Jews, they love being able to use this new coinage under this new system to do business with each other. And so what happened was you see this real improvement in the area of the Holy Land. All of a sudden you see a very robust and diversified economy. Everybody starts to benefit from it, from the aristocrats to the artisans to the peasants. And what we see is, is that this would have benefited Jesus as well. Jesus was born around 4 BC, and we have to say probably for the first 40 years of the Roman Empire, which is 26 BC, that's when Augustus takes over, until about 14 AD, he's born right in the middle of all of that, that he gets to enjoy and actually benefit from a lot of this economic prosperity that is going on around him. And so he grows up, and it says in the scriptures that he is a tecton. Now, that word tecton that we translate today, we translate that as carpenter. But the truth is, is that that's actually probably not what he was. There actually weren't very many carpenters in the area of Galilee. If he was an artisan, he would have been more likely a stonemason. But to be honest, probably tecton refers to the fact that Jesus was a handyman or a day laborer. So he would go out and he would work a day, as many peasants did, and be able to build things when there are projects. Now, Jesus is from an area that is called Nazareth. And Nazareth is a very, very small little hamlet. There's really not many people there, maybe as much as 100 families. So if he's a tecton, he probably doesn't have that much work in his hometown. But thankfully, not five miles away from where he lived, when he was growing up, about the time he was a teenager, there was a massive building project going on in a city known as Sephoris. So Sephoris 
was home to some of the wealthiest Jews in Galilee, and they were building these massive palatial homes. Now, we don't know for sure, but it is likely that Jesus, he would have gone down and been a part of these building projects. And not just him, lots of peasants would have been there trying to work on these homes and been contributing to them. And so this would have been really positive for all the people who were working at the time. It would have been extra money to be able to feed their families. Unfortunately, around 14 AD, everything begins to shift because in 14 AD, that is when Augustus, he dies. We don't know for sure, but likely he was poisoned by his wife. And so his wife's son, who was not related to him, a man by the name of Tiberius, he becomes the new emperor. And he was not as shrewd as Augustus. He actually wanted to use the Roman treasury to be able to buy things for himself. And so he starts taking all of that coinage and hoarding it so that he can buy whatever he wants. And of course, as he starts taking all of this money out of circulation, if you know anything about economics, it causes interest rates to start to rise and it creates a credit crisis. Now, initially, this credit crisis, it doesn't just hit everywhere. It takes some time. And by about 20 AD, Jesus would have been about 24, 25 years old at that time, this is when it starts to be felt. A lot of those building projects in the area of Galilee, they start to dry up. Now, all of a sudden, all that extra income on which those peasants had come to rely, that was going away. And on top of all of this, because money was being taken out of circulation, the governments were having trouble functioning. And so they went to the tax collectors and they said, look, guys, we got to cover this gap. We got to make sure that we can function the way we need to. So what was happening is the tax collectors were going out and they were inflating their tax rates heavily. It was already inflated, but they were inflating it even more. And this is why you hear so much about tax collectors in the New Testament. They were robbing people blind because they had to cover the gaps due to this credit crisis. So this is why it was so bad at that particular time. And so if we fast forward a few more years to about the mid-20s, 25, 26 AD, all of a sudden we see that things get really bad. We have to remember it's not like today where the economy kind of contracts and rebounds very quickly. This takes long periods of time for this to be felt in all these different places. So by 25, 26, things are getting really bad. All of a sudden, the peasants who maybe had or own land, they're getting behind on their debts, and now they have to sell their land in order to remediate the debt. People are having to kind of give up a lot of what they had before, and this, of course, is very sad because what it means is, is that the land that they once owned, it's now going. It's being sold to these very wealthy Jews for whom many of them worked on building their palatial homes when they were doing building projects in places like Sephoris. So now these wealthy Jews not only had very nice homes, but now they were owning their land as a result. So it should come as no surprise to you that Jesus's movement arose at the height of this credit crisis. Jesus, he's looking around and he's watching his people who could formally afford to have a good living, to have a home, to raise their families. They could no longer support their families anymore. They were having to sell their businesses. They were having to sell their land and they were living as indentured servants. Life was very, very bleak and there was very little hope on the horizon. People were asking the question, how do we get into this mess? How did we get here? Everything was going so well. Where did things go wrong? And they were looking for answers and Jesus had an answer to this question. Jesus said that the reason why they were in this situation 
is because wealthy Jews were colluding with the Roman Empire. So the Jewish aristocracy, they were willing to do anything to make money. And in his opinion, the Roman Empire was evil. They were making a deal with the devil. So what had benefited everybody in the short run was now destroying everybody in the long run. And Jesus, he wanted to put an end to this corruption that had gotten them into this mess in the first place. And perhaps one of the greatest symbols of that corruption was found in the Jerusalem temple. Now, as I told you earlier, the Jerusalem temple was the place where the Jews went in order to worship God. But even more importantly than that, that's where they went to offer sacrifices to God. So as you can see here, they would walk in initially into the temple courtyard. They would change their money, and then they would go and they would purchase a sacrifice. And after they purchased the sacrifice, they would hand it over to the priest, who then sacrificed that on their behalf. Now, why would they do this? They did this because in the book of Leviticus, what it says is that if you want to be forgiven by God, then you have to literally sacrifice an animal. That's the way that you are forgiven. So they were doing essentially what God was asking of them in the book of Leviticus. They were purchasing the animal, giving it to the priest, being forgiven of their sins. Now, as you might imagine, there was a whole industry that cropped up around this because the Jews were constantly needing to make these sacrifices. And so this was big business. And as a result, the interactions and the transactions that took place on temple property, the priest took a cut of every single thing that happened there. So whenever they changed money, the priest took a cut of that. Whenever they sold the sacrifice, the priest took a cut of that. And in fact, even more than that, after they did the sacrifice, they would then sell the meat out of the market. They would get a cut of that money as well. So there was a lot of money coming in. And you couldn't just choose to be a priest like, you know, I did today. I chose to become a pastor, right? Not that anybody wants to anymore. But the fact is, is that you could choose. You couldn't do that back in the day. It was a family business. You was passed from father to son. And most of those people were aristocrats. And they, more importantly, had been chosen, vetted by the Roman government. They had to be loyal to Rome's interests. So when you're looking at the Roman Empire and you're looking at how it influences the Jewish people, the temple was almost universally seen as a corrupt institution because Rome had so much influence over their religion. So this brings us back to Palm Sunday when Jesus is making his way to the Jerusalem temple. The reason he wants to go there is because he knows that that is the greatest representation of this collusion. And he wants to begin a revolution. His whole point of walking into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices is that he wants that to be the spark that starts a massive fire. More than likely, Jesus was hoping to rally the commoners and to inspire them to want to storm the temple and clean house. He wanted to get rid of the priests who were in power. He wanted to cut ties with the Roman Empire. And they wanted to install their own priests who would be loyal to the Jewish people and their needs. Now, the Jewish aristocracy, they got this message loud and clear. They knew exactly what he was trying to do. They knew he was trying to foment revolt. And this is why Jesus is charged with treason. In the Gospels, the reason why he's charged with treason is because he goes before the Sanhedrin and they feel that he's committed blasphemy and they can't kill him. The truth is, the reason why he's charged with treason is because of this moment. It's because he goes in and he does what he does in the temple. He's going up against 
all of the power structures that are in place in the temple, and they want to get rid of him. They want him charged. They want him executed because they want that insurrection to die with him. And if we're being honest, they were successful. They did exactly what they needed to do to shut him down. And in that moment, he was not able to see that revolt come to life. They didn't storm the temple. They weren't able to overcome. And so the justice that Jesus was seeking had to be postponed. And that is something that is very true about the world in which we live, which is that justice is often elusive. In fact, that is exactly what this parable is all about. So in the parable, there are two characters. There is a judge and a widow. And so the judge, he is described by Jesus as somebody who has no fear of God, which could mean that he's not Jewish. He may be somebody who's installed by the secular government, or it could mean that he is Jewish and he just doesn't care about the laws. And it also says that he has no respect for people. The idea being he's not out there to do the right thing. As a judge, he doesn't care about seeking a just outcome in the cases that come before him. All he really cares about is making decisions that will benefit him and doing things that he cares about. Now, the other character in this is the widow. Now, we don't know what the case is that she's bringing before the judge, but more than likely, I'm taking a guess here, more than likely it has something to do with the assets associated with her family. Being that she's a woman and a widow, if she wants access to those assets, she would have to have extenuating circumstances and the judge would have to find in her favor, particularly if there are other men in her family who are involved with those assets. Now, What we see is, is that the judge, he actually doesn't want to give her justice and likely is not going to, even though it's implied in the parable that he should give her justice, that in fact she is deserving of of him finding in her favor. But it's likely that he's not going to do that because he doesn't care. So she employs a strategy. She's going to go to him day after day and request that he give her justice in the case. And he doesn't want to do this. He has no desire to do this, but he weighs his options. He could say no, and this woman is going to bother him all the time. Or he could say yes and get her out of his hair. And so he finds in her favor, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the right thing to do for him. Now, when most people interpret this parable, I think what they see here is they think to themselves, well, what this is telling me is that if I pray enough, if I badger God enough, then God will eventually give me justice. Now, that is one way you could interpret it. I actually don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get across in this parable. I think it's something a bit deeper than that. In my opinion, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that justice is often not a straight line, that it is not linear, that if you want to achieve justice in the world, it is something that you have to have a lot of persistence with. You have to persistently go after it because the world is not really designed to give us justice. And a really good example of this is actually found in the story of a man named Nathaniel Johnson. Nathaniel Johnson, he was a black man who was accused of raping a white woman in Augusta, Georgia, in 1959. So the way it goes is that Nathaniel is arrested, he's brought into police custody, 
and the arresting officer is interrogating him, but he's getting nowhere in terms of eliciting a confession. And so what happens is the police captain, he comes in, he ushers everybody out of the room, and he says, give me some time with him. And a few hours later, he emerges, and what he has is a handwritten confession from Nathaniel Johnson stating that he was the perpetrator of the rape. And of course, with this confession, it very quickly went to trial. Now, what I want you to listen to now is audio from Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is a writer. He also has a podcast called Revisionist History, and he's talking about this specific case. So I want you to listen to this now. There were very few black lawyers in the South in those years. If you were black and in trouble, you rarely had one of your own to represent you. Justice is supposed to be blind, which is another way of saying that we're supposed to close our eyes when we enter a courtroom and not notice a fact like race. In 1959, Donald Hollowell and Vernon Jordan had their eyes wide open. They watched what was happening to Nathaniel Johnson and Augusta with growing alarm. And he was given a white, court-appointed lawyer who convinced him, given the circumstances of a black man being accused by a white woman of rape, said to him, the best way to stay out of the electric chair is to plead guilty, have her corroborate your guilty plea, and you'll get life. And he went for it. He did not get life. He got the electric chair. To put that in perspective, there was a case in Atlanta right around the same time as Johnson's, only that involved a white man convicted of raping his black maid. He broke down the bathroom door and attacked her. He got two to five years. White-on-black rape was a two- to five-year crime in the state of Georgia. Johnson faced the death penalty. Now, as you might imagine, Nathaniel Johnson was convicted and he was sentenced to death. His two lawyers who were working on his appeals, these were two lawyers, you heard Vernon Jordan speaking. Vernon Jordan was one of the great lawyers during the civil rights movement. Sadly, he recently passed away, and he was working with his boss at the time, a man named Donald Hollowell. He was one of the famous lawyers who worked during the civil rights movement. Both of them were a big reason why they had success with the civil rights movement. So Vernon Jordan, Donald Hollowell, they're working on his case and they're trying to get a stay of execution because Nathaniel Johnson told them something very different than what he had confessed to. He said that this woman who he was accused of raping, that the two of them were having an affair. And so this white woman, who of course was married to a white man, she had sought out to have an affair with Nathaniel Johnson. And unfortunately, she became pregnant in the midst of this affair. And so the two of them were discussing how they were gonna deal with this, and they got into a disagreement and then they had an altercation where Nathaniel Johnson hit her. Now, as a means of explaining the bruising and the fact that she was pregnant, she said, she told her husband that she had been raped by a black man. And so this led to the arrest of Nathaniel Johnson. Now, I want you to listen to Vernon Jordan. This is him talking about that, what happened the day before Nathaniel Johnson was executed. The white court-appointed lawyer the night before he was to be executed, got drunk in an Augusta bar, borrowed paper from the bartender, wrote out a writ of habeas corpus, and went to the judge to argue that Nathaniel Johnson's rights 
under the Fifth Amendment had been violated. As it turns out, that's the wrong amendment. Under those circumstances, the lawyer should have raised the Fourteenth Amendment. But the lawyer's writing an appeal while he's drunk. And it's not at all clear that he cares that much, since if you read the trial transcript, Johnson's lawyer barely ever said anything. And it went up to the Supreme Court on certiorari, which was denied. And then Mr. Hollowell, my boss, was hired, and I went with him to see Nathaniel Johnson in the Reedsville State Prison. He was a very handsome, cool prisoner. Hollowell and Jordan were brought in by the NAACP to try and win a stay of execution. One last Hail Mary. When you went on those rounds, was no one interested in hearing the facts of the case? No. That includes the federal district judge. That includes a local judge in Reedsville, the chief justice, the attorney general, and the board of pardon and paroles. It was over. It was done. Do you think they honestly believed it was a case of rape? Or do you think that they... It didn't matter. It was a white woman and a black man, a black man doing something that was out of the question in the South. And the court-appointed lawyer had to know that it was a consensual relationship. They weren't even going to the trouble of thinking it through. Nobody was interested in justice. Did you ever meet the accuser? I never did. The word is that after he died, that the white lady went around to black churches and asked forgiveness. Now, I wish I could tell you that this case was unique. This is one in a million, but it is not. Nathaniel Johnson's experience was the experience and has been the experience that many people in our criminal justice system have had here in this country and around the world. And I don't know if you noticed it, but what Vernon Jordan did on the day of that execution where he went from judge to judge trying to lay out the facts of the case, trying to get them to listen, that is exactly what happened in the midst of the parable that Jesus was talking about. Exact same type of circumstances that are there. Vernon Jordan was seeking justice for Nathaniel Johnson, and the judges didn't care, and they had no desire to do the right thing. Now, Vernon Jordan and Donald Hollowell, they dedicated their professional careers to being like the widow in this parable. They were up against a system that had no desire to grant them justice, and yet... They would go to court, get in front of these judges in case after case, knowing that their efforts would likely be fruitless, but yet they sought out justice nonetheless. And so what I believe the point of this parable is, is that if you want to achieve justice in this world, then you have to make it a life's work. It is not something that will just happen on its own. You have to be dedicated to it. And the reality is that everybody in the world wants justice, particularly when something bad happens to you. You clearly want to have justice. But the fact is, is that most people don't want to put in the work to actually see to it that they not only get justice, but everyone gets justice. And this brings me back to Jesus 
and Palm Sunday. So very similar to what happened with Nathaniel Johnson being represented by Vernon Jordan and how they were up against this massive system that wasn't going to help them at all. The same thing was happening with Jesus. When he took on the aristocracy by going to the temple, trying to take that down, the chances of him being successful were very slim. And when he was killed, when they executed him, what's amazing about Jesus' story is that he didn't stop fighting for the oppressed after he died. His disciples took up the mantle of what he was doing, and they sought justice as well. Generation after generation kept coming forward to the people in power, and they said that if they came across somebody who was subdued, they fought against oppressive regime and economic systems. They said, you cannot do this. For the first 300 years of Christianity, that was something that was so critically important to who Christians were. They were not going to allow that to happen. And so, as a result, what we have to realize and understand is that the desire for justice, the desire to bring justice about in the world, that this is something that is critical to the DNA of the Christian faith. That this is something about who we are. And when you divorce justice from Christianity, the seeking of justice, when you say, nah, that doesn't really matter, that doesn't really count, that's like trying to play soccer without a soccer ball. You essentially strip the meaning and value out of Christianity. And the truth is that if you look at most of the Christians in the world, they sit there and they say, well, you know, if you want to seek justice as a Christian, that's totally good by me. Go ahead and do that. But that's not what I'm going to do. And I understand why people say that. Because seeking justice is hard. It is a really hard thing to do. You have to be like the widow in the parable. You have to be like Verdon Jordan. You have to have courage. And not many people have the courage to go up against these big systems again and again. You have to have tenacity to want to keep coming back again and again. You have to be willing to deal with disappointment after disappointment. I mean, think about it. When Vernon Jordan was going to court when Nathaniel Johnson, that wasn't the first time he dealt with a situation like that. He had to go again and again, knowing that these people were going to be executed for things they did not do. And you have to be willing to deal with that over and over again. But perhaps the biggest reason why Christians have a tough time, many of them, dealing with justice is because if you happen to be at the top of the justice mountain, which by the way, many of us in this congregation are at the top of the justice mountain. We're affluent and we're white. And in this society, that goes a long way. When you are there, it's very hard to see when you're at the top of that How hard it is for people who aren't like you. You sit there and you say, well, it works well for me. I don't understand why everybody else is having such a problem with this. And so what has to happen is when you're at the top, you have to come down and stand with those people and look at it from their perspective. See what it is that they're up against. And then you can understand why the justice system doesn't work in their favor in the same way that it might work for you. And so my hope and my prayer for you today is that you might be willing to stand up and do the work that is necessary to actually bring justice to this world, that you might actually care about justice as a Christian. This is part of our calling. This is what we have to do. We, as Christians, we have to be willing to come down off the mountain and help 
the helpless. And if you're wondering, why do we have to do that, Alex? It's because of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that speaks to us about the justice that we have to seek in this world. Jesus did it, and we have to do it. And so what we have to do is we have to come down off of our perch. We have to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who have been denied justice again and again so that we can create a world where people are no longer oppressed and justice is truly blind. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.